My name is Kendra Walters. I am a PhD candidate. My work deals with looking at how bacteria in the environment move into leaf litter. So through rain or wind or jumping from soil particle to soil particle and how that impacts decomposition. I hope that my work sheds a little bit of light on what environmental bacteria are doing because we don't know a whole lot about them, but we know that they're very important and that there's, there's a lot of them um, and that that can help us kind of understand how to make a healthier world, like healthier ecosystems, healthier agriculture, healthier people. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There, you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Today, I'd like to welcome Kendra Walters. She is a grad student at the University of California, Irvine, in the, the Department of Ecology, you said, I believe? Yeah, the Department of Ecology Eco and Evolutionary Biology. Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. That's a long name. It is a long name. So we know each other because of our work together in the Lowdown on Science, which is a, you guys have heard this a bunch of times by now, an NPR show where we take science articles and make them funny and, you know, humorous, and you get to understand the cool science that's going on. And she's part of the writing team there, which is how we know each other. And you're in an, you're active in and out of science communication, from what I understand, too, right? So we've crossed paths before. So Yeah, like through bruise and brains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So glad to finally get to sit you down and have a, have a talk about yeah. your work and your life. So, I'm excited about it. I'm glad. I'm glad. Now, it's kind of creeping into the public consciousness that bacteria is everywhere and not all of it is bad, right? But yeah. when you say you study environmental bacteria, what exactly do you mean by environmental bacteria? It's a great question. I think in the public's eye, we're pretty attuned to human microbiomes, so bacteria in your gut that help you digest things like fiber that you just can't digest on your own. But on the converse, there are bacteria you know, outside of your gut as well, in the soil, in the air on leaves, trees, kind of everywhere, and they help make our world the way we know it today. And we know that there's a lot of them. You know, we've been studying environmental bacteria for a long time, but I think we are just in the last few decades really ramping up what we know about who's out there. You know, there are different species. Um, what are they doing? How important are they really? Um, and then where I come in, like, how do they get around? How do they disperse? So you're interested in how these bacteria move around. Could you tell us about, well, number one, how do they move around? Why is that important? And could you, I guess, get into like what exactly it is you study about how they move around? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I come from an ecology background. I'm really interested in the community ecology of bacteria that live in these decomposing leaves. So we know that there are 
a lot of different species that live in leaves. And we're kind of wondering why, like, why are there that many species? Why are there these particular species? And one of the questions or one of the processes that we think kind of contributes to the community of bacteria in leaves and pretty much everywhere else is dispersal or movement. So that's why I'm kind of researching that. Um, looking at movement, like how do bacteria move around in in the environment, we think that they're coming through a few routes. They could be coming through rain or wind. And we can think of rain and wind in two different ways. We can think of them as transporting bacteria from really far away. Think of like the Santa Ana events that we've been having recently, you know, where wind is coming from the Great Basin and it's probably taking a lot of bacteria from like east of us and transporting it here. Uh, and that for time. those uh, non-Californians yeah. around here, Santa Ana winds is right around October time, which is when we're recording. Uh, the winds start to pick up, uh, it gets real hot all of a sudden. Oh, it's fall started, starting to get cold, and then bam, it's 90 degrees again, and just blows a lot of wind from the basin, you said. Yes. Up, yes, up to the northwest of Orange County, I believe, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah, sorry, it's sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, No, please. thank you. Um yeah, so we can think of rain and wind kind of acting in that way, long distance transportation. Um, we can also think of them as acting as a source of energy to move bacteria around very locally. So if you picture a field of grass, which is what I study, I study grasslands, and maybe a strong breeze coming through or wind falling down. And as it does that, it's interacting with the grass, like the grass is moving in the wind, or it's kind of like being pushed around by the rain. And that movement is flinging little bacteria cells, or maybe little pieces of grass that carry bacteria cells off of the grass and onto other surfaces. And so that's dispersal our movement as well of these bacterial cells. So I study kind of those two aspects of wind and rain. And then I also look at movement up from soil. So there is a bit of a longstanding belief in microbial ecology that bacteria that we see decomposing leaves are actually coming from like far beneath in the soil and they're moving up. And then like after a leaf falls, they might come up from the soil and attach onto that leaf and then you know, start to live there. Where do you go for these piles of leaves? Does that, and where you get these piles of leaves, does that matter a lot on your research? I think that it does matter where you study because the environment will look very different. You'll have wind coming from different directions. You're going to have different amounts of rain. Um, you're going to have different vegetation or slope or maybe soil type. And I think that that all impacts bacterial dispersal, but we actually just don't know. I study a particular grassland that's about a 20-minute drive from the University of California, Irvine. It's I study there because we have a long-standing experimental design there in our labs, and so it was very easy to get a permit, and it's pretty close. Being a microbial ecologist, I could study anywhere in the world, which is great because that means that, you know, my field site is 20 minutes away, and that's very convenient. But also, if I felt like one day moving to Costa Rica, I could do the same experiments I do here, but just in a different setting and maybe get a different answer. Or I don't know. I guess that's why you're doing this work, right? Because we don't know. 
Yeah, there's not been a whole, there have not been a lot of studies on dispersal because there are so many of, so many bacteria and they all kind of move at once and they're so small and we don't even know what species are really out there. And so it's, it's just very hard to track. How far in are you in your program? I'm starting my fourth year. Fourth year. So could you, so you've, have you had time to ruminate on some of your findings? Yes, I have. That's what I've been doing the last couple months. Ah, good. Ruminating's fun. Yes. Yes. Could you could you share any anything any interesting tidbits? Yeah. I mean, this is all preliminary. So if in the future a paper comes out, it might be different results. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The results are so. The thing about ecological data is that it's a little confusing. Like ecology is really cool because we're studying what actually happens in the environment, um, but it also the data is pretty messy. But that says so that's just a little disclaimer. Um, that when we look at it, we have our three main routes. We have moving up from soil. We have kind of long distance rain and wind transportation. And then we have like short distance rain and wind transportation. And we have found that bacteria seem to be coming in roughly equal numbers from all three routes. It really depends on the time, the time of year. So we think that there's a bit of correlation between like when rain comes in and bacteria coming up from soil, which makes sense. Maybe like you have rain and they're kind of hitting the soil, the rain's hitting the soil and transferring the bacteria up to the leaves. So you kind of need a bit of energy to get bacteria from point A to point B because on their own, they're really not going to move very far just because they're so small and they, I don't know, they don't have legs, I guess. Anyway, and so that's kind of how the bacteria we think are moving around. And then when we actually look at what species are moving around, it becomes, it's a little, yeah, that be, that, so when we look at what species are moving around, that gets a little bit more interesting. So we see that the bacteria that are moving up from soil or kind of getting blown or knocked off grass from wind or rain, that those species look a lot like the bacteria that you see on leaves. That if you just go out into the field and take a sample of decomposing leaves, that that's sort of the pool of species that you're pulling from. But then the bacteria that you see coming from really far distances through wind or rain, that those species look a lot like what you see in the in the air at any given time. And and that's kind of what we expected to happen, which is really amazing. This was, this is my like risky project in grad school. And so the fact that I'm getting results that make sense is very cool. What makes it risky? Is it just trying to identify what bacteria are there and how we're doing the detective work to figure out where they came from or? Yeah, the risky part of this project was trying to kind of separate out these different dispersal routes. So that had never been done before. Um, we kind of devised a new method by using different types of material that were either open or closed to immigration. So the closed material would have pores that are so small that bacteria can't fit through it. That's like a pretty small pore. And the open material is just window screen. So bacteria can easily come through. And then inside these little dispersal bags, we have these glass microscope slides. And those are sterilized and they're just kind of a, like a landing platform for bacteria to like 
land on and then we wash the slide off in the lab and then we take that like rinse off and that's what we use to do bacterial abundance analysis to look at the species that are there so we didn't know if if this method of like excluding certain transportation routes would work we also didn't know if we were going to get enough bacteria on the slides to do anything with you know, if something's too low biomass, it can be very difficult to work with. And we did lose a lot of samples because they were really low biomass. Is, well, that's why I think we lost the samples. Um, but we had so much replication that we, we still got answers, which was very cool. That's kind of spectacular. So you had to devise this all new way of capturing bacteria in yeah. order to differentiate. Because, yeah, I, I imagine once they landed in a leaf pile, it's just a, just a swath of bacteria, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So we really wanted something that we knew whatever bacteria we saw on there had to have come from this dispersal route. That's really cool because it reminds me of the that high school biology story about the guy who first discovered that bacteria was what was making people sick. Yeah, and it was being transported to the air, and it wasn't being it wasn't some weird etheric quality just permeating through space, this guy was saying, no, no, this is actually a thing. And then he used, um, oh, I forget the type of flask, but it's got this long gooseneck that lets air travel in it, but it's so long, it has this U-shape in the bottom. Particulates can't make it up up the pipe. And he was able to show that, oh, nothing is getting in, but the air is getting in fine. You guys all agree with me on that, and so bacteria must be a thing. Kind of reminds me of that, this uh, new way of... Um, I guess, filtering out bacteria from where they came from. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of terrifying work because you never really see, you can't see the bacteria. Like there's so few of them. So what you just see is this glass slide that maybe looks a little dusty and then you rinse it in clear liquid and then you do a bunch of things to that clear liquid in the lab and then you spend a ton of money to sequence the DNA in that clear liquid and then like a year and a half later, you find out whether your experiment worked or not. So it takes a year and a half between capturing the samples. Is that because just the process is that difficult? It's a couple factors. The first one is my experiment ran six months in the field. And you don't want to do any sequencing work until the very end of the experiment. Because when you extract and when you sequence that can have a huge bias on your results. So you just want all of your samples to be treated the exact same way. So you just freeze everything until you're ready to go. And then another part was that I was really nervous about the lab work. And so I did a ton of tests. And in retrospect, those tests were like probably not that necessary, um, but they made me feel a little bit more confident. And I'm also just kind of a procrastinator. So I just really procrastinated doing this work. And yeah, so that's why it took a year and a half to get the data. <laughs> I got you. I was, I was actually going to ask um, if you answered this kind of question already, if there was any sort of anxiety when it came to, I have this slide, it just looks like a piece of glass, and now we have to sequence it eventually. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's an expensive process, you said, right? It's very expensive. Yeah, that's kind of the downfall of microbial ecology methods is we basically take whatever cells we think are there, uh, we split open their cell walls, uh, we take out their DNA and try to purify it. 
then we amplify or like replicate the certain segment of the DNA that we're interested in. That'll give us a a species identification. And that all costs a lot of money. Like, I don't know, maybe a 50 sample kit is $300, $200. And I had almost 300 samples. So it was easily over $1,000. And then the sequencing is, I don't know the exact number, but I think like one to two-ish thousand dollars. Hmm. I'm comparing with the cost of my 23andMe. Seems about reasonable. Yeah, they're probably sequencing your DNA along with a lot of other people's DNA to kind of bring down the cost so that you don't have to pay for one sequencing run yourself, but you share it with a hundred other people. How do you think this sort of research will help humanity? Um, I kind of have two answers. I have the, I don't know how I would call this. I have the like pretty picture answer and then the uh, research despair answer. The pretty picture answer is that, you know, we really, we don't know a lot about bacteria. So just getting sort of any sort of information is just going to help us kind of form this baseline of what are bacteria doing in the environment? How are they getting around? Who's there? Um, and then we can kind of start making some, uh, getting more questions or making some changes to the way that we manage our lands based on that. So for example, just understanding what species are in like maybe agricultural fields versus like native forests that have never been, you know, disturbed by humanity. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, to be honest. That's fine. (laughs) Okay. I'm an energy researcher. I can relate. (laughs) Um, The pretty picture answer is hard because, to be honest, I think that this work isn't really that impactful, um, which is something that my advisor would definitely disagree with. So I guess it depends on your, your perspective. But in my like research despair perspective, I think it's something that maybe five to 10 other people will care about in the world because that is approximately the number of people that seem to be working on bacterial dispersal. And that's it. I think that we could potentially use similar approaches to study the dispersal of particular organisms like agricultural disease causing bacteria or bacteria that cause disease in hospitals. Um, and that might be a little bit more of a direct line to like policy changes. But when I think about how my research is going to impact the world, I don't really think it's going to have that much of an impact. You'd be surprised. Number one, I... I understand. Yeah. Uh, my latest paper had a grand total of 20 downloads. And I was like, wow, that's surprisingly high. 20, wow. Whole 20 people maybe read this somehow. Uh, no references so far, but anyway. Um, but it does sound kind of interesting that you are, we're now able to do that detective work of figuring out if it came from the sky or from the ground which may be useful somehow. I can imagine it being useful. I just This is not my field, so I don't have the sufficient imagination to see how it could be. But yeah, it's definitely like, okay, this is kind of cool stuff, I think. Right. But Yeah, I could see it being useful like 20, 30 years down the road when we have a much better understanding of like what species are where and what they're doing. Because right now we have 
we're not exactly sure how necessary it is to know exactly what species are there. Because what we really care about bacteria is we care about what they're doing. Right? We care about the ones that are fixing nitrogen for our plants or the ones that are decomposing and turning the dead leaf litter into nutrients that other plants and animals can use. And so once we have a better understanding of the whole picture, then we might be able to use some of the dispersal research to kind of inform our understanding of how to, I don't know, how to make the most out of the bacteria. I guess that's coming from an engineering perspective too. And if you think about it, just the pure basic science perspective, it is, it's pretty cool research. Like it's something that we absolutely did not know anything about a year ago. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I think a potentially interesting question is how do people fit into all of this? Because we are, you know, our thing is to kind of shape the world to, to, you know, how we see fit, our needs or whatever that may be. And it's definitely going to change the profile of the bacteria that's around in the environment. Do you imagine that we are having like a profound effect on the sort of bacteria that's around? And how might that affect our environment going forward? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we are having a profound impact on the bacteria around us. There are bacteria that are specific to certain plants, certain soil types, uh, ecosystems. You know, the bacteria that you find in the Arctic are very different than the bacteria you find in a tropical rainforest. And so by changing our environment, like cutting down native habitat um, to for agricultural fields or by introducing non-native species, climate change, <laughs> for sure, uh, changing the ecosystems, we are definitely shaping the bacteria that are there. And if we want to think about dispersal, we are shaping the way the bacteria disperse because you have a different landscape, that's going to really change how bacteria are going to move around in that landscape. Or at least that's my hypothesis. Might be my next chapter, I'm not sure. How exactly we're shaping the environment and if that matters to us, I think is something we're still exploring. I think that it does matter, but I'm not exactly, like I wouldn't be able to tell you how. Um, but there could be a situation like we might be shaping the environment in a way, right? We might be shaping bacteria in the environment in a way that uh, is selecting for certain species of bacteria over others that could, they might perform different roles in the back, in the environment. And that could impact the environment. Like maybe there's less nitrogen fixers, so there's less nitrogen nutrients for plants. Could you explain what nitrogen fixing is? Yes. So we have a lot of nitrogen in our air, but it is what we say biologically unavailable. And it is very difficult to take biologically unavailable nitrogen and make it something that plants or anything else can use. Um, but there are bacteria that do that specifically, and they often form symbiotic relationships with plants. So we think about like pea species having these little root nodules, and those are home for nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And their whole job is to take nitrogen that no one wants 
and to make it into nitrogen that the plants can use. And then in return, the plants give the bacteria protection and food, I imagine, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, so less nitrogen-fixing bacteria is generally we would, like, we wouldn't, we need nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So. Yeah, because we like to eat. We like to eat and plants like to eat and it's just overall a pretty advantageous thing. Um, one connection to climate change that seems really important is um, when we think about decomposers, you know, these are essential for um, ecosystems because they take dead plant litter that's not doing anything else in the environment and break it down so that new plants can use it and support a healthy ecosystem. But by decomposing, they're releasing CO2. And so we think about CO2 as being a greenhouse gas and more CO2 is a warmer climate, it's faster climate change. And so we kind of something that we want to figure out in the field of microbial ecology is how quickly are these bacteria responding to ecosystem changes, responding to climate changes, and is that going to kind of exasperate climate change or are they going to mitigate climate change, kind of figure out how they fit into this global picture. Yeah, that kind of gets at something I was getting around to. So my head spins in two different directions hearing about this stuff. The first is kind of the gnarly idea that there was a point in the history, the, the geological history of the Earth, where none of these bacteria existed in our atmosphere. And if something just died, it, it just existed there because nothing would break it down. Like if like some animal died, and of course I guess there wouldn't be animals at that time period. But if somehow there was something that died, it it would just its body would just be there until bacteria somehow evolved to the point where it would eat it. Which is kind of a gnarly thing to think about. All these processes happened because of evolutionary processes, and in the recent sc yeah. in the scope of geological history, fairly, I mean, not recent, but recent-ish. That things can decompose and then we have the cycle of life sort of deal. And the other thing was, uh, on that note, perhaps in the far-flung future, when we start thinking about making Mars a livable place, terraforming it or whatever, that kind of sci-fi stuff, like, wouldn't we then also need to think about bacteria, what they're doing, how they're moving around, because that's going to play a big role in how that environment's going to be shaped. And that sort of engineering is going to need to get done, too. Yes, definitely. So there has never been a point, I think, in the geologic past where there haven't been decomposers because the bacteria evolved first. And I imagine... That's what I figured, yeah. Bacteria eat each other, too. So there's, I think they've always decomposed something. Um, but we see, um, like, the red forest in... I never know how to pronounce it. Is it Cherbana? Cherbana? Cherbon. The like nuclear plant. Oh, Chernobyl? Chernobyl. Thank Chernobyl. you. Okay. So we see in the red forest in Chernobyl, there isn't any decomposition because the radioactivity kind of killed all of the life, I guess. I don't know. People haven't really been taking, to my understanding, like samples to study the bacteria that live there, but. Dead plants just stay dead for for a long time, and they haven't started to decompose. And so that's a real life example of how if you take out the decomposers, like there's just there's nothing, there's no turnover of life. 
And, you know, I've heard apocalyptic stories, like what if stories, like, okay, what if there are no decomposers on, on life? On, I thought if there are no decomposers on earth and life just ceases to continue as we know it rapidly within a year or two, agriculture starts breaking down. We don't have food production. You know, oxygen is limited because all the plants are dying. I don't actually don't know how quickly that would happen. Anyway, but then we think about to the future. Yeah, if we wanted to, to live on Mars, we would definitely have to think about the bacteria and what, what communities do we want? What, what like functions? Like we, do we want those nitrogen fixers? Do we want other types of bacteria and, and culturing them? Like, do we just take samples from soil and put them onto Mars soil and hope that they survive? Or do we do something a little bit more intentional and try to match like, what is, what is Mars? What do we want Mars to look like? What does Mars look like now? And try to bring over certain species that we think would do well. Yeah, definitely very important. My advisor actually like has worked with NASA to talk, to think about like, how do you make, how do you study the bacteria that maybe have come back from space? That's pretty sick. They're not from space, but from the earth went into space and came back. And on the converse, like, how do you make sure if you find bacteria on Mars that it wasn't from earth? Yeah, we didn't accidentally bring it along, and that's what we're yeah. detecting. That's something I think about a lot. How does that happen, then, if you're familiar? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that... I think they're... I don't know. I, my approach, if I were NASA, would be to really kind of characterize what bacteria are on their equipment to understand, to kind of get a catalog that you could compare new bacteria against. And then also to figure out how to sterilize things. On that note, do you ever think about how much bacteria is already in space because we put it there accidentally every time a shuttle or like some sort of satellite launches um, and it wasn't clean to an inch of its life? And now there's like a tardigrade or something like that in there. Didn't, didn't a country recently intentionally release tardigrades or keep them in space somehow because they were studying something? Either way, we're doing that. So do you often think about stuff like that? Uh, not that specifically until you brought it up. The Mars thing, for sure. Um, I think bacteria wouldn't, like, now that I think about it, they wouldn't live in space for very long. There's a lot of, like, UV exposure. I just read a paper that looked at bacteria in the atmosphere up to, I think, 36,000 kilometers, which at that point, you can definitely see the curvature of the Earth. Like, you're, you're pretty far. I would say you're in space, but I guess you're not technically in space. I don't know where the cutoff is. But anyway, they found that there are bacteria that live up there, which is kind of crazy. Um, so they're really persistent against like desiccation. So they don't, they don't really mind being dried out. Um, they're persistent against UV exposure that would kill a lot of other bacteria. Uh, but they, even they, like the bacteria that you find up there wouldn't survive for more than a month. I think the, the paper did some calculation. But it was about a month. So even if you release bacteria in space, I don't know, maybe they're up there for a month or two, and then they probably died. I don't know what would happen to their little bacterial bodies. Like, if there's nothing there to decompose them. Right, is that also, could that serve as a catalyst for something else eventually? Which in itself is an interesting biological question. 
and perhaps even a philosophical one as well. I think that the UV might break it down. So it wouldn't even need something to break it down for them. hmm. Hmm. In some ways, I hope that's what happens. In some other ways, I kind of hope that's not what happens. You know, because it'd be cool if that was, you know, if something happened, something interesting happened. Because we're a stray bacteria that we shot into space. Are you a sci-fi lover? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. How about you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So it would be interesting to think about. Hmm? I had a suspicion. So (laughs) on that note, uh, this, this idea has been floated around on this podcast before. The idea that bacteria are not, well, humans are not really people. We're just spaceships for bacteria. So, I guess. So when I said what I uh, what I said about you know it'd be if bacteria died in space and it was just completely sterilized, that'd be good in a way because that way we can't be contaminating wherever else we're going in space. It's unlikely unlikely that will happen. On the other hand, I think to myself, well, okay, if we are just spaceships for bacteria. And all they want to do is just go around places and spread out, spread out as much as they can. Isn't that what they want, right? Shouldn't they be like, you know, working with this creature who is eventually going to shoot themselves into space and then somehow accidentally fling more of them out there as well? Isn't that all part of the game? That's an interesting question because you're thinking like a pathogen or like a virus that infects you and then makes you like sneeze and cough as a way to like disperse itself. Like that is definitely an evolutionary strategy. And I don't, I don't know about like the ones that aren't kind of like taking advantage of like a host, like the ones that are happy to be in your gut and are there to like eat your fiber and kind of like control your mind a little bit and make you eat the things that it wants you to eat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Now, I'm not I'm not saying like explicit sort of like there's no panel of bacteria in a dark boardroom with smoke right. and mirrors and stuff like that. Like telling like, you know, subtly encouraging people to develop space programs or anything like that. But I mean, it's just one of those things that's like, hey, we did this thing and all these spectacular things happened that we couldn't have expected. Because I can't imagine bacteria can expect very many things, given that, as far as we know, they, there's no discernible nervous system. Right, right? yeah. But uh, but it's an interesting thought, because uh, they engage in this symbiotic relationship with other organisms. They'll help break down their fiber in them. And also, you'll, they'll give us homes, and they'll keep us warm, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now, also, they're blasting themselves off into space. So, I guess we're going into space, too, now. Okay, cool. Right? And then in that way, they're propagating themselves even further, perhaps in ways that couldn't have been imagined. Again, I can't imagine bacteria imagining things, but I could be wrong. Who knows? Who really does now? Uh, yeah, I imagine, I don't really know about the space thing, but that made me think of, like, as people, we're, we're very social. We hang around with other people quite a lot. And maybe bacteria benefit from that because they're kind of sharing themselves with each other and you know if you there have been studies that show that you know you move in with your college roommate and you don't know each other beforehand you have very separate microbiomes uh, but pretty quickly your microbiomes start to resemble each other if you get a pet 
a dog, your microbiome will start to resemble your dog's microbiome and vice versa. And so maybe bacteria like these commensal bacteria that that live with us and really like benefit from the host and we benefit from them, maybe they do better with social organisms. Or maybe you see different patterns, maybe not doing better is the right term, but you see different patterns with social organisms. As far as I understand, the kind of current proposed method for that sort of uh, gut microbiome transmission across people is that we're literally breathing each other's shit all the time. Because there's like transmission of fecal matter, right? You cough, there's just bits. Because the digestive tract is just one long tube, and the breathing tube's the same tube. So, like, stuff gets coughed up, and then you breathe it all the time, then that's how stuff that theoretically should stay in your gut makes its way around. I remember, um, for the lowdown, actually, one of my scripts was about lemurs who would cuddle each other and, like, groom each other, and the best friends, lemur best friends, you can identify them because of their similarities in the microbiome. Interesting. So that you get transmission going on. That's supposed to help spread them and also help with their robustness and their like group immune system. Now, if someone's immune to this thing, they'll spread bacteria that might help fight off these other sorts of infections and stuff like that. It's interesting stuff. Yeah, which could definitely work in reverse if one of them gets exposed to a bad pathogen. And then now they all have it. Right. So what made you want to get into this sort of work? That's actually a great question because, as I mentioned before, I did not study microbial ecology in undergrad. In undergrad, I I came into undergrad with knowing that I liked biology, and so I joined a biochemistry lab and worked on like proteins for a while, looking if this one particular protein sticks to itself in the presence of calcium. I didn't love that. <laughs> because I couldn't see the proteins. Um, And so I kind of explored other fields and ended up in this paleontology lab where I studied the teeth of this extinct mammal called oreodonts. They lived in North America. I looked at their baby teeth, kind of looked at what shape they were for a couple of years. And I didn't love that because it seemed uh, it was just, it's just difficult work. Like people who do taxonomic paleontology work, you know, they hats off to them. It's hard. And so I switched into this like more ecology focused project where I was is in the same lab. I was still working with mammals, but ones that are alive today and looking at their diversity across North America and whether the diversity is controlled by precipitation or temperature. Fun fact, it's not. So I didn't publish my work. Um, but anyway, I like I fell in love with that. And I started taking a lot of ecology classes at the same time. And I just like after my ecology classes, I was always in a great mood. I was like loved learning about these things. It's like you start to like you see the nature, you see the nature, <laughs> you see in the natural world all the time. And in ecology, you start to figure out why it's why the things that you've seen forever are the way they are. And why aren't they like something else? And so that was very cool. So when I went to grad school, I had a couple questions that I wanted to answer with my research. Like I wanted to look at what species are in an area and why those species are there and why aren't there other species there? And I found that the people who were 
answering those questions were microbial ecologists. So I applied to a lot of microbial ecology labs. I didn't have really any experience working with microbes. I got into UCI, into this microbial ecology lab. And after that, I took my first microbiology course. I was like, well, okay, we better better learn about microbes because I'm going to be working with them for a while. So it was a little bit of a leap, but it's been really fun. I think the questions that we're answering in microbial ecology are really exciting. So you would say you have a deep interest in how the natural world came to be. Yeah. Hmm. Where did that question come from? When did you first start asking that sort of question? I think that was during my first ecology class. I was a biology major at the University of Oregon. And I had to take a certain number of biology classes. And so I like took ecology on a whim. And it was just, it was really eye-opening. It was the first time that I like thought about these questions. Like we, we looked at what's around us and then we asked like, why is it like this? And I guess it just never occurred to me to ask those questions before. Um, but I've kind of discovered that the more you pay attention and the more you question what you see in the, in the world, like then the more questions you have about why you see certain things and you start to like see patterns. And it's just, it's very cool. I know that's really abstract. Um, but I feel like ecology is kind of abstract in a little bit. Now you're here in this program kind of doing the sort of asking the sort of questions you want to ask more mm-hmm. or less, right? Do you feel like it is easier? That makes it easier to kind of keep that alive. During the, the, you mentioned in the beginning of the interview, talked about the um, sort of the uh, the more dreadful moments of grad school. Does it? Do you feel it's easier to keep those sentiments alive because you have a bit of alignment in that? Yes, definitely. Um, I like I I think that the questions I'm researching are are interesting. Like I get excited when I think about them. My advisor is very similar to me. I mean, I don't know if she would agree with that, but I think we both get excited about like community ecology questions. And so when we sit down for our weekly meeting and I share with her some new results from my my latest study, and we just kind of geek out for a while about like, oh, wow, is this is this really happening this way? Like, okay, we see this pattern. Like we see there are like more bacteria here, these certain species here. And then we see that the leaves are like decomposing in this way. Do you think that like, do you think that these bacteria are impacting that or stuff like that? So yeah, it's definitely easy to, or easier to have motivation when grad school gets hard. So despite alignment, things get rough, I imagine, especially when you have to run thousand dollar experiments that may or may not work, you know, of yet unknown reliability of the result, like if you're going to get anything or not. When it gets rough, how do you deal with that? Yeah, things definitely get rough. It's a lot of like science, I think, is exciting when you have a story, but making that story takes so much time and so much work, and not everything works. Um, I think there's a couple things that have really helped me. In doing grad school, I've discovered that I love biking. And so, you know, getting out, going to the gym and, and spinning or going out on bike rides Similarly, like hiking, long distance, backpacking, those kind of help me. So just getting out of the lab, doing human things. 
Um, another thing that I found very helpful is like seeing a therapist. So when I went through my advancement in, I guess it was April of this year, that was a very stressful time for me. And my, I would say my department, like ecology is known for being like a little bit more relaxed than other departments. So it wasn't even that stressful of an advancement situation compared to other grad students, like the stories I've heard. I just don't deal with stress very well, I think is what I've learned. Um, and so seeing a therapist definitely helped with that. And I'm continuing to like, you know, it's just nice to have someone to talk about, oh, this has been hard, or like, I feel like this didn't go very well, or like, why am I not wanting to do that? Like, if I get a new project, like, why do I not want to work on this? Um, kind of working through those questions. Aside from advancement stress, were you going any for any reason specific? Any other specific reason? I think just general stress and anxiety management. But I've also just from seeing my therapist learned that, you know, maybe other grad students can agree, but like I'm a bit of a perfectionist and that can be kind of detrimental to like not really finishing things because I don't think that they're perfect enough or not wanting to take new things on because I'm afraid of failure. And that, that is, it's hard to like progress in a career if you're always doing that. Right. That, that's glad to hear because, uh, you know, there's a dear friend of mine puts it this way. When you're, when you need an oil change and you're going to need an oil change for your car, just how cars work, you go to a mechanic. Uh, you get regular maintenance done. The same is for a brain, which is a machine of sorts. You just you go get some sort of maintenance done. You don't have to wait till you find out you're like, oh, depressed or something like that, like I did, to go see a therapist or anything like that. You don't have to have a particular reason to go. No, I... Yeah. So actually... Like a reason to go, if you, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying because I, I waited until I was like, I went through advancement. I tried to find a therapist during that time, but it was just so, it was such a short time period. I couldn't find someone in time. So I kind of like had to deal with all that stress on my own. And so afterwards I went, I was like, okay, I'm just going to find a therapist now because like then when, you know, when shit hits the fan, I'm going to have someone who knows me who I'm going to be able to, to lean on. And so even even if I feel like I don't really need to talk to someone in a particular week, it's just it's nice to go and continue to like have that relationship with a professional brain doctor. Yeah, the distinction there being professional. Yes, professional. Which is not the same as, you know, having a friend to like have some support or whatever like that. It's a different kind of support, I agree. Yeah. It's you also like it's more I I don't want to burden my friends all the time with with things that I'm sure like they're dealing with similar stressful things. And so it's yeah, it's nice to have someone that I just know once once every two weeks for an hour I can talk to about whatever I want and kind of just like release all of that negative emotions and then kind of start to sift through it. And she is trained to do that. So that thing about perfectionism uh, it's not something I can relate to at all. Also, I'm lying. That's- <laughs> <laughs> I was like really upset at you for a little bit. Like, wow, your life must be great. Fantastic for oh, you. No. no um, <laughs> perfectionism, um, which is why. So, uh, side note, uh, by the way, 
the domain for the This Grad Life website, which you all should visit, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, I purchased back in April. Oh, nice. uh, we launched in October. So there was like April, May, June, July, August, September, October. Seven month delay mm-hmm. between purchasing the domain and the podcast going live. Never mind, you know, like, I think it took like four months before I interviewed my first guest. Because I was like, oh, how is this going to go? Oh, this looks like garbage. Oh, I'm garbage. Oh, I'm not going to do it then. And stuff like that. And that went on for seven months until we launched. So, yeah, totally can't relate to perfectionism at all. <laughs> but um, aside from perfectionism, is uh, I know another common thing is imposter syndrome, right? Because I know I had to deal with this list because... No one's going to want to listen to me or no one's going to interview. Blah. Did you have to deal with any of that as well? And did therapy help with that as well? Uh, yes, to the to the first one. I would say, like, I'm still haven't seen my therapist for that long. So still still working through things. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely. I had huge imposter syndrome. I know, like, my first few months of grad school, I... I just like, well, the first day of grad school, I came in, I met with my advisor. She gave me a project. Well, asked me if I wanted to work on it. And it sounded amazing. And it sounded like something I had similar experience with in undergrad. And I got so excited. And then she showed me a desk and I sat down and then she left. I was like, <laughs> oh, what do I do? And I had a computer and I had a desk and a chair. That's and like a terrifying. pen, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, I didn't know if I should be reading papers or how to find the papers or what papers to read. How many papers do I read uh, a week? Do I do research? Should I just like jump right in? Do I need to talk to people first? Do I like how? Well, how do I do research? Like, um, and so that was really stressful. Uh, and s- stressful is a word, but that sounds terrifying. Oh, I remember there was this. Um, older grad student in the lab who sat right next to me and like he would come in and he was like trying to be nice right and he'd be like oh what are you reading or like what you working on and i interpreted this as a quiz and i was like oh no i have to say the right answer um and so that was very yeah that was difficult and i would i mean like i'm definitely still struggling with it but i think it gets better as i progressed in my field and kind of figured out what my like scientific identity was like, I really claimed dispersal as like, this is something I study and not very many people study that. And so that's kind of cool to have something that I feel like is mine and I have ownership over it. So that's helped a lot. And then just getting results. and Those results are meaningful. Yes. That is our job in our lives. In fact. So. Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's the goal. It's the dream. That's, that's kind oh. of, that's a spectacular story. Cause if I were to put myself in your shoes, I'd be, like, terrified, right? Because I made it here. I'm already doubting if I, you know, know anything, right? And all of a sudden, oh, here's a desk, here's a computer, bye, right? And it's like, oh, yes. okay, okay. I, you know I don't, I'm not qualified to be left alone, right? <laughs> right, like, oh, who's my babysitter? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, Someone- like that. Yeah, I think it was, like, exasperated by two things, too, like, coming from a non-microbial ecology background. Like, I just didn't know anything. And so that was hard. Like, I was trying to appear like I knew things so that people wouldn't question 
me, I guess, or question why I was in grad school. Um, but then also like coming from a background not in science has been a little difficult um, just because, you know, my my parents don't know about grad school and they don't they don't know. Or well, I mean, they do now. <laughs> But before they didn't know about like right. the three chapters of a dissertation and how like a relationship with what in a relationship with an advisor is like, um, you know, whether I get summers off or not or winter break or not, do I take classes or not? Like those are all questions I had before I went to grad school. And so that that's been difficult as well. Although pretty, it's also exciting because then I'm able to like now I'm like the person in my family who's in a PhD program. And I feel like if, someone else wants to go to grad school, like they have someone to ask. Were there any um, particular difficulties that came out of, I guess, having a family that just didn't know what grad school was about? I mean, none of us really know what it's about going in, but I guess extra not know what it's about, I guess. Um, so I would say like, I'm not, I'm not like trying to weep a story of my own sadness, right? Like my parents are very supportive and they do have an interest in like nature, the natural world. Like they're the reason why I I am interested in ecology, I think, like when I think back to my childhood. So anyway, they've always been very supportive and asking questions and that's been really cool. Um, I think that the only difficulty is like when I hear of other people's experiences who have parents who went through grad school and they like they just have someone that they can ask questions to. Like when applying to the GRFP, they had someone who like already knew what that was and knew kind of how the process went or could like sympathize already. Um, and that was something that, you know, I wanted to, like I needed to explain to people and then, and then I got the support, but I had to first communicate what my experience is and like how it was like great or challenging and then I got the reaction, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, you mentioned it, it took some time to finally get to claiming your scientific identity as a person who studies the, the movement of bacteria. W- when do you feel like that happened, or when did you realize that that happened? Hmm. It's also a good question. Well, when I first came to grad school, I definitely didn't have that identity. Like I didn't, I think a lot of grad students are like this, no matter what your background is. Like, what do I want to research? And someone asks you, and that I think is one of the most terrifying questions because you feel like you should have an answer, but like, I just didn't. Um, my second year, I wrote the, the like application for the graduate GRFP, the Graduate Research Fellowship Program from the National Science Foundation. And that I wrote about this dispersal project that I, that I've been doing for the last two years. And so I think working through that, like I had this deadline, like October 22nd or whatever it was, like I need to submit something that kind of covers what I can do in my dissertation. Um, so there were a lot of meetings with my advisor where I kind of threw around some ideas I had. I remember making a lot of mind maps. I like printed out a lot of papers where I'd like read the title. I'd be like, okay, if I'm interested, I'll print out the first page of the paper. And then I sat down on my floor and just like read all the abstracts. 
and kind of like highlighted the words I was interested in. And then I kind of took all those words and put it in a mind map and kind of like just saw, well, what are my interests? How do these ideas connect? And I think that helped me figure out that, you know, what, like what I think my identity is, is a community ecologist, which I guess I've sort of known for a while, but didn't like explicitly know. And then in the context of bacteria, I feel like I, as a community ecologist, can do the most impactful work by looking at dispersal, because that's the mo- one of the more understudied areas of community ecology and bacteria. So you feel like it was the act of collating all of the thoughts that you've had, the ideas, the data you've produced so far, that that act of putting it into a document that eventually will, you know, lead to a grant. And that was, uh, that was what did it for you. Yeah, I think so. I think I like constantly think about what I'm interested in or things to do with science. But the second I had to actually put words on paper and make it really, um, I don't know what the word is, like, like concrete. Yeah. 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 Like there had to be sentences and they had to be readable and there had to be nouns and verbs. And and that really forced me to kind of like hone in on something. Words do have a habit of doing that for us. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Did you end up getting that grant? Yeah, I did. Thank you. (laughs) It's been amazing to have the flexibility. Right, because that lets you focus on your project, not someone else's project or another part project as part of a different grant or something like that, that you can totally own that. Yeah. And the thing in our in our department, we get a lot of our funding through TAing. And so by getting the GRFP, I just didn't, like, I don't have to TA anymore. Mm, oh, yes. Which I guess is kind of sad because I love teaching, but also has allowed me to really work on this on this project and make pretty big strides with it. So much so that I'm adding like a fourth chapter to my dissertation. So like. Why not? Nice. Also, I'm not going into academia, so I also think of this as like my last gung-ho of science. Mm-hmm. Well, not, you know, like research-based science. Right. What are your plans then if you're not going? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say that like in general, I don't really know what I want to do when I grow up. But through grad school, like grad school is great because it is kind of terrible. Because it... It's hard and it's challenging <laughs> and it really has made me think about who I am as a person and what I want to do in my life. That's a statement I agree with, yes. I'm like, well, I don't think I want to do this, so let's figure it out. Um, but the things that I found that I really enjoy doing are talking about science, rather that's like talking with my mouth or like writing with my hand. I don't know why I'm talking about it like that, but doing that, um, teaching I guess just helping people kind of learn. And so something in that round realm, something in that realm. The easiest solution is to be like a community college professor um, or like a professor at a small liberal arts school. But I also really like mentoring students and helping them think about science and write hypotheses, which is surprisingly difficult. I feel like I'm still learning how to write a good hypothesis. Um, yeah. I'm not I'm not really sure. Freelance writing would also be cool. Maybe something I can do on the side to earn money. Yeah, I, that statement of I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up that resonates quite a bit. Um, and there are definitely times where I feel like 
the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because, merely because I've committed to it for no other reason than that. And I wonder sometimes, um, not that I didn't enjoy my thesis work, not that I don't enjoy my current work now. Um, it's just that, hmm, I wonder, like that, yeah, I'm still kind of, yeah, even after being done with my PhD for a little while now, I'm still kind of like, huh, what do I want to do really? It's certainly a, a pervasive question. Yeah. I really like doing informational interviews with people. If I think someone's job is cool, I'll ask them if I can just talk to them for half hour, an hour, mm -hmm. learn about their job or how they got there. And something that I've taken away from that is that a lot of people don't know what they want to be when they grow up. And people do like somewhat dramatic career shifts in their middle of their field. And I used to think that that was a bad thing, that I was interested in a lot of different things. But I think it's actually a strength because it shows that you can, you're flexible and you can succeed in different areas. Um, and that you have like knowledge from, from a lot of different parts of the world, like, like the lowdown where we're like writing about science or like in the lab where I'm like trying to pipette very precise amounts of clear liquid or. Yeah. Yeah. I think if people are really honest with themselves, most people don't really know what they want to do, really. And you're right. I think that's fine. I think that's fine. You should search, do things, search, get good at things. Yeah. Life is long. Yeah. Well, it seems long in seems my 20s. seems long sometimes. Yes. So I feel like we have a lot of time to do a lot of different things. So final question. When you have to stress eat, what's your go-to stress eat? Uh, it would definitely be something with cheese on it. Cheese. Like mac and cheese, breakfast burritos, quesadillas. You know, sometimes I just throw like a handful of shredded cheese in a pan and let it fry up a little bit and then I eat it like a crisp. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There's like a taco place down the street that does that now. <laughs> yes. Like you get a incredible. side of like cheese crisps. Yep. No, like you can, you know, you get the taco and then they put it in a layer of cheese crisp. Yeah, I'd be down. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. It's Do pretty spectacular. You, is it okay to say the name of that place? Yeah, probably. Um, let me look at it. It's that new place. You know, um, Strickland's got replaced, right? Yeah. And then the place next door to it. Got oh, it's Takiero? Yeah. Wait, by campus? Yeah, it's by campus. I didn't know they did that. So you get the quesadilla, which is just a taco. In cheese. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. I'm actually really happy that place showed up because, like, happy hour is getting very sad. Just cycling through Eureka and Gina's. Yeah. Yes. And the pub. Yeah, it's Takiero Taco Patio. Okay. Yeah. Their quesadilla is a taco wrapped in that cheese. That's that's good to know. It is spectacular. Well, uh, thank you for being on the show. It was just real nice chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for your questions. They were fun to answer. Mm -hmm.